check, 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 check. Yep. Well, hello and welcome to Idiots with Instruments, the show that follows the band Red Hot Rebellion as we write and record new music and interview industry music pros in an effort to teach these old dogs new tricks. I am Jim Tramontana, bassist and lead vocalist of Red Hot Rebellion. Hey, I'm Doug. I play guitar. I'm Andres. I play the drums and I sing occasionally. It's pretty badass, isn't it? So, uh, welcome. What do you think? Thanks. We're going to feel like doing a little interview? Yeah. 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 All right. Let's run it right now. Joining us today is Dan Coutant, owner of Sunroom Audio, a world-class audio mastering studio located in New Windsor, New York. For over a decade, Dan has worked with bands and labels from around the world to produce amazing, polished music. His studio is purpose-built specifically for mastering and critical listening, and his focus on excellence and customer care is second to none. He's also a sorcerer of sound and a super nice fella. Dan, welcome to Idiots with Instruments. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, I am glad to talk to you because I know a lot of people, even though like I've been in a band pretty much almost my entire life and have very little understanding of what mastering actually is. So I was wondering if you could uh, explain to me and our listeners what a mastering engineer does and why it's important to use one. Sure. Um, I'll do my best. It's a uh wide open question. Yeah, but, I know. Purposefully, <laughs> um, so you can take in any direction you want. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I guess to sort of try and narrow it down a bit, I mean, you know, in today's kind of recording world, um, you know, there's there's a lot of folks kind of doing their own thing. And um, so that, that kind of ends up, uh, you know, the scenario being a band, uh, that has like sort of a pro tool set up um, at home or, you know, the friend's basement uh, scenario is, is pretty common, et cetera, so forth. And, you know, people are kind of, um, they're winging it a little bit. Um, you know, they're, they're talented people, but maybe don't have the experience uh, or the listening environment to really kind of nail it, you know, um, mm-hmm. sort of, sort of get it right. And um, so now more than ever, mastering is sort of, become a process that that kind of you know lends a helping hand to people that are just sort of struggling to get professional results you know um so a lot of times i'll work with uh bands um or artists that that are just sort of you know doing bedroom tracking and they're doing the best they can and they're getting pretty close and um you know it'll go as far as you know me uh consulting them along the way if they're if they're, if they're doing a recording and they're not sure about what they're getting, uh, initial in the initial tracking phase, you know, they might give me a call. We might exchange some files. I might listen mm-hmm. to some stuff and say, Hey, you know, hmm. your guitar sound is a little, you know, has some resonance in the low mid range that might become a problem when you start mixing, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So, so you're um, kind of like an ad hoc so producer like, kind of right in that, in that sense, you're, you're kind of producing. In them a sense, way. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, this is just one facet, you know, of, of the business, but it's, an aspect that I, I see a lot is, you know, just kind of helping folks get it right before right. they get the, you know, the, the finished mixes to the mastering engineer so that, you know, we could actually, you know, help them, um, 
achieve a pretty professional result because, you know, otherwise, I mean, there, there's not much of a point to, to going through all of that. Um, right. you know, you want to make a record on your own, but you don't want it to sound like you made a record on your right. own. You want it to sound like you're recording in a studio. So, yeah. so yeah, so mastering has almost extended into that, uh, almost into a, you know, pre-production mode where, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people are, um, you know, there's been several records this year, that I can remember. I mean, really talented people, you know, excellent songwriters, really, really brilliant people. Um, and they just don't have, you know, the record company support or, or budget, um, to kind of make the record that they probably deserve to make, you know what I mean? Uh, and so when, what ends up happening is, yeah, they'll, they'll call me. I mean, it even goes as far as to, you know, to the point of where they're asking me, Hey Dan, you know, what, this is my budget. I need a microphone to record my vocals at home. Mm, yeah. You know, what kind of microphone should I uh, buy? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's kind of smart. Know, um, like thinking about the end product while you're actually making it versus just like giving you a, a right. bunch of crap and say, Hey Dan, fix this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I, you know, great would greatly prefer as you can imagine. I mean, I, I love being kind of in tune to, you know, the, the origins of, mm-hmm. of a recording project that is eventually going to end up here because yeah, obviously, the more I can consult and uh, sort of steer people in the right direction, you know, the easier my job is going to be by the time I get, you know, the, right. the finished mix file. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's, um, you know, that's one aspect of it. And then, you know, the next level up from that is just, you know, a, a, a typical mastering se- session, we'll say a traditional mastering session, which is essentially, you know, uh, the mastering engineer gets a finished album, uh, that has been recorded and mixed. So in other words, you know, all the instruments have been captured, uh, vocals have been recorded and balanced, uh, so to speak. Um, and so you're taking these two track stereo files and you are trying to, um, you know, number one, you're, you're trying to not undo any good things that were done, uh, up until the point that you, you know, until you got the files. And then number two, you're trying to, you know, maybe enhance a little bit, maybe add a little bit of excitement to the recording. Um, you know, if it's necessary, you're, you're doing a little bit of corrective work as well. So, you know, if, if a, a mix, uh, or a collection of mixes may have a little bit of an inconsistency in a certain frequency range, uh, you know, the bass is, is pretty common, um, to have sort of, you know, some wobble and, and some need for some corrective work. You might just, um, you know, sort of tighten that up. Um, cause, cause you know, the, the fundamental thing at the heart of mastering is, you know, you're a person who is listening to the music in an environment that is, you know, very well tuned mm-hmm. and that you're intimately familiar with. Like you really know, you know, what music sounds like in this particular space. Um, and, you're just used to hearing a lot of records in, in, you know, through the same set of speakers in the same chair in the same environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it comes to you pretty quickly what needs to kind of happen, you know? Um, yeah. So that's kind of, you know, that's it, in a nutshell, that's the heart and soul of the job. It's just that, you know, taking these recordings, you know, applying your knowledge of music, your musicality to, you know, this, this group of recordings that is going to become one, a, a singular release, um, and you're going to make sure it's consistent. You're going to make sure, you know, you're familiar with the genre and, you know, sort of the benchmark of where it kind of needs to get to, to, you know, play well alongside other releases in that genre or just in general, you know, it's going to be on 
you know, a, a college radio show. It might be alongside a bunch of different stuff, but right. you know, you yeah, just want to yeah. make sure that it sounds like it holds its water, you know, right. uh, up against whatever else is out there. So, um, and what are some, so yeah. That, and, and it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, every mastering engineer does that a little bit differently and has a little mm. bit of a different philosophy about, you know, what that requires, but, Essentially, that's what we're all doing. You know, we're just we're just sort of trying to meet a kind of personal benchmark, you know, an internal benchmark for for us, and that's basically what we're being paid for is to, you know, a have good taste. So you, mm-hmm. you hope that your mastering engineer has good taste, yeah, and understands <laughs> and, the music that you're making, and yeah, all yeah, that stuff. right. And what, what and are some best meet, practices then for like bands to like prepare their music for a mastering engineer? Um, well, you know, it's really just comes down to, you know, making your recording sound as good as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, and sticking with your vision for, for the recording. I mean, you know, the mastering engineer really shouldn't come in at the end and kind of reinvent anything, so to speak. Um, you know, you really just, you know, there's lots of technical rules and things and people ask questions all the time. Um, you know, how, how loud should my mix be? Should, you know, should I put right. compression on my mix? Yeah. Should I EQ my mix? And, you know, it really, you know, it's, it's all over the map. It, there, there really isn't any set of specific rules. It's just, you know, fundamentally, I just always try and tell people, you know, if you have a lot of experience with, you know, what you're doing and this is kind of your thing, this is the way, you know, as an artist, you approach, you know, preparing a mix or, or, you know, preparing a recording, um, for the mastering phase, then just do your thing. I mean, you know, if you know what you're doing, I'm going to be fine. You know, uh, um, I really don't have any specific rules except, you know, just don't, you know, blow it up and then send it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Expect it to be, you know, reassembled, (laughs) so to speak, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's basically my, my rule of thumb is what I tell people, you know, should, should I do this? Should I do that? You know, it's really up to them. Uh, unless they're not sure they're, they're just doing it because they think that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and then, you know, but they're, they really don't have any control over what, what it is they're doing. So try and discourage that. And, and if people are unsure again, you know, I do a whole lot of listening to stuff before I ever start working on it and sort of consulting and, you know, just saying, you know, a little move here, a little move there. Uh, up or down, left or right, whatever, you know, we're going to be in the ballpark. We're going to be good, you know, ready, ready to finish it off. So, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff goes on on a regular basis. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an important part of the job. And it's great that people kind of trust you to, you know, sort of lead them down the right yeah, road because you're like you're the guy like putting the final polish before it goes out into the world so do you you got like kind of a lot of responsibility but at the same time if they give you crap you can't polish a turd right so so the, uh, <laughs> yeah i mean you know there there are expectations sometimes that you know you you hate really to you know in a service-based industry and in a very competitive industry where you want to be able to do you know, anything that is asked of you to do, Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to say no or to tell people, you know, we can't quite achieve that, you know, particular level of quality that you're hoping for because of what you did, (laughs) you know, it's kind of a hard thing to say, but, but it is, you know, it is a regular everyday thing and people, um, 
you know, tend to understand what it is they're giving you and, you know, what's realistic and what's not realistic. But again, like I, I, you know, maybe I'm a little bit of a, of a dreamer about it, but, you know, I always try and exhaust, you know, every possibility. And, right. you know, when people ask me to, to try and tweak stuff and, and get it closer to, to this or that, I mean, I'll try absolutely everything at my disposal and, you know, yeah. and I've, I've Let's talk Done about a lot. Let's, talk, yeah, <laughs> let's talk about what you have at your disposal because I know a lot of you know a lot of bedroom musicians just have like their plugins and their 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 this and that. It's all done in the box, but you have like a lot of outboard gear and like you have you were talking about your specially tuned room. So like what um what makes that kind of stuff more um true to achieving the the overall quality of the sound versus just using software? Well, it's interesting because I mean, you know, depending on, again, it all, it always comes back to the individual who's actually doing the work because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's more than a few, uh, you know, very talented people in, 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 even in the mastering business, which, you know, tends to focus more on analog outboard processing. Mm -hmm. Um, that's sort of, you know, the thing that, you know, I I used to say sells tickets. Mm -hmm. If you're a master engineer, you know, (laughs) you got to have this trinket or that toy. Um, on your, on your gear list or else people aren't going to take you seriously, but that's not really the case anymore because digital technology has come a long way. You know, it has gotten a lot better and, and, uh, there are more than a few, you know, very well-respected renowned mastering engineers that, that, you know, are very open about the fact that they work mostly in the box now. So, you know, it it takes a long time to develop the chops to be able to do that. Um, and get to a similar result than, than you can with, you know, lots of fancy outboard analog stuff. But, um, and is that a consequence, yeah, I mean, uh, is that a consequence of, uh, how people are consuming music now? Like on just like iPhone speakers and they're not listening in like high end, like hi-fi audiophile systems like they used to be or. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I don't think they're really, you know, anyone's cutting corners by staying in, in mm. the computer, uh, when they're doing, audio work or mastering. Um, but, uh, you know, it does streamline the process a little bit, you know? Um, I mean, for me personally, uh, like I said, everyone works a little differently, but for me personally, if I were to work all in the box, it would probably cut, you know, the amount of time I, I spend doing my job in half, (laughs) you know, like, because you're, you're essentially eliminating, um, you know, writing down notes on all of your, you know, analog settings for every song. And I mean, there, there are more automated ways to do that now, you know, there's sort of software uh, that you could use to kind of record settings on analog hardware and sort of save them as a file. But, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm getting older and I'm just real old school, but I like to have a physical, you know, notebook that's filled with a bunch of kind of chicken scratch, <laughs> you yeah. know, notes, setting notes. And, and I have, you and know, literally, uh, and that's, <laughs> what's that? I was going to say, and that stuff's like real important too. Like you're the actual, the, the outboard gear and the, uh, the analog stuff, especially when you're talking about like vinyl pre-masters and stuff. And I was wondering if we could go down that road in a little bit about, you know, like what kind of, um, role, 
like you take and like sequencing because of the way different frequencies work physically on vinyl versus digital. And like, I think like when I think of like really, I mean, you're, uh, you're the guy, full disclosure, Dan has um, mastered some Red Hot Rebellion stuff beautifully. And we use you because of the fact that you, you um, do so much cool stuff with vinyl, even though when we're not, when, even songs we're not releasing for vinyl, we want your, your taste and your uh, kind of expertise on that. Um, so I guess, can we talk a little bit about like the differences of like uh, uh, mastering digit for digital versus vinyl? Absolutely. Sure. And that was a big tree, big tree to go around to get to that question, but (laughs) (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's definitely a little bit of a different approach. Um, you know, it it is and it isn't, I guess is, is the easiest way to describe it. But I mean, basically when you're preparing something for vinyl, the big, biggest difference that I talk to my clients about, um, is that, um, you know, you don't necessarily need to go, for the throat as far as volume, um, when you're, you know, when you're preparing masters for vinyl, because, you know, vinyl side lengths are, are a much bigger determining factor in, um, you know, how loud your vinyl record is going to be cut. And again, this all goes, you know, back to cutting engineers who actually do this stuff, who actually cut lacquer masters. I mean, you know, they're the real experts on this, but Mm -hmm. in, um, you know, the many, many years I've done this and, and, you know, many, people that I've worked with that are very, uh, renowned kind of vinyl mastering engineers, uh, who cut vinyl, you know, lacquer masters Mm -hmm. have sort of coached me into a process that, um, you know, gets consistently good results. So, uh, so basically, I mean, that's the big thing for me is, you know, to, to encourage my clients to sort of, you know, let's run kind of a separate pass of everything and, you know, back off on, on the limiting, you know, the digital limiting and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, not really go for, you know, into a territory where we're compromising the sound quality, uh, you know, because doesn't a lot of bass make like the bass will make the the needle skip and stuff and depending on where it is in the either outer or inner in the platter or something. Is that how that works? Yeah. I mean, again, you know, you can, can have as much bass as, as you want. Um, but it just needs to sound good and it needs to be balanced, you know, with basically within the context of the recording that you're talking about, you know, so you don't really have to back off of bass, uh, to, to cut a successful vinyl record. I mean, that's sort of, you know, basically one of the myths that is out there that, you know, you got to be careful about your bass. But again, it's all relative to the side length. If you have a really bassy record that, has a 25 minute side, you know, you're just going to have to expect that you're going to have a pretty quiet record. You know, I mean, that's just the way it's, it's gotta be. And, um, they're just limitations of the format that, you know, kind of impose realities on, on us as engineers that, you know, we just sort of have to do the best we can. And if people want their record louder, you know, we need to talk about, you know, their vinyl record, that is, we need mm-hmm. to talk about maybe, you know, cutting a song if, if they're, kind of their side of their record is getting into the 20 minute plus uh, territory. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we got to resequence for vinyl. Maybe we've got to cut a couple of songs to get this sort of down, you know, to, to closer to 18 minutes so you can get the, the volume you're after. I mean, you know, it's all communication is key and it just comes down to, again, you know, understanding the limitations of the format right. and there are limitations, but you, you know, if you do everything right, um, you know, you keep your, side lengths 20 minutes or less mm-hmm. 18 is ideal but you know 
around 20 minutes is still fine. Um, bass in general is really not a problem, but you know, if you start to get into stereo bass, that's where you sort of mm. get into yeah. tricky territory. Um, you know, again, bass, stereo bass can be cut to vinyl. I mean, that's another sort of broad generalization that people make is they tell you, you know, you cannot cut stereo bass to vinyl, which is not true. Um, but again, it comes down to every situation is different. Every record is different. And, you know, um, it's really about communication and, you know, I'm going to tell my clients, like if there's an issue, like your bass is funky or, you, you know, you have some out of phase bass in this song, um, you know, it'd be better for vinyl since vinyl is such a, you know, sort of critical part of this project, critical aspects that you're really, you know, want to maximize the potential of mm -hmm. maybe we should remix the song and just kind of have the bass coming up the center and that'll save us some trouble. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, when it comes time to cut the vinyl. So, you know, it's always different. It's all over the map, but, you know, communication is key and understanding sort of the general technical stuff um, about vinyl. I think it's way overblown. I think everyone's like afraid, like, you know, <laughs> oh, vinyl, we got to, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we've got to start over it's now because so we're doing vinyl. But yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I guess that's, that's, that's like one of the things that you offer as, you know, why uh, your service is so important because you have the expertise and um, the experience with all this stuff. So that's, that's right. yeah, and that's that was why I was kind of um, excited to, to talk to you about this because there are so many myths about mastering, and um, and we we got to dispel those myths, people. <laughs> How long have you been? There are many there are many nuances. I yeah. think is is the the word really because I mean a lot of people make like I said there are a lot of broad generalizations that are out in the ether about, you know, mastering or whatever, any aspect of production. And, you know, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, right. you know, most of the time it's really not sort of a blanket, you know, rule that uh, you can't do this or that. It's just really depends, uh, you know, situations are unique and, you know, sometimes, um, you know, you just have to take every project as, you know, for what it is and, that's it. That's, yeah. that's basically the, that's my broad generalization is every, absolutely every project is a little bit yeah, different and requires a little bit of a yeah. different discipline. So how long have you uh, been a mastering engineer and did you go to school for it or are you self-taught apprenticeship? What'd you do to get there? Uh, I say I'm primarily self-taught. Um, but yeah, it's we it's a weird thing. I mean, I sort of, I, I started out, it's, it's probably, you know, the common tale of, you know, starting out recording bands, uh, in a basement. Um, you know, I mean, my friends bought like a, you know, affordable pro tools rig, uh, about 15 years ago and, uh, started kind of, uh, convincing bands to give us a chance to record them. And, and one thing leads to another, you know, and mm. several years later, um, as it happened, you know, I was learning about what mastering was and, um, started taking my engineering work, my mixing work and tracking work to, uh, Alan Douches, who's a mastering engineer, uh, at West West side music and, uh, you know, really legendary engineer that yeah. mastered pretty much any, you know, every CD that I had when I was <laughs> 23 or 24 years yeah. old. And, um, so, yeah, so, you know, I just basically got interested in mastering because of Alan's influence. I mean, I, you know, had such 
huge amount of respect for what he did and was really intrigued by it and probably felt, you know, similar to what you're describing, which was, you know, what is this really mysterious process? You know, what's this This black magic that this guy is doing (laughs) to kind of get records to sound that way and, and get them that loud and get them that, you know, exciting. So, you know, long story short, eventually Alan and me sort of, you know, developed a, a good rapport and, um, ended up living in the same town, uh, as his studio and basically, you know, asked him if I could work there. And, um, I guess that was around 2006 or seven. And yeah, I just kind of, you know, I started working with him and, and started to learn the ropes and, uh, was scared to death of it for the first couple of years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I mean, well, were you working you know, with Alan, like some Alan heroes is, of yours? I mean, like, I mean, obviously Alan was a, like a kind of a, a mastering hero, but did you work on bands that like you grew up listening to and are like, Holy crap. Now I'm working on their record or. or yeah. You? I mean, there was some trial by fire for sure. Yeah. There was, <laughs> um, I, I, I remember doing an earth crisis reissue. Oh, cool. Um, one of the first things I ever mastered there, which was pretty intense. Uh, And yeah, and there was, you know, and then another really important person in my sort of career trajectory was Jay Robbins, um, who, you know, uh, I guess of Drawbox fame, um, the 90s Discord band. And um, so he was sort of my, you know, a producer that I really idolized at the time. I mean, he was kind of making all of, you know, my favorite records in the late nineties, mm-hmm. he was producing and mixing a lot of that stuff. And, um, yeah, so I sort of ran into Jay by being at West West side, uh, with Alan and the real scary event that sort of, you know, uh, unleashed it all for me was Jay, uh, actually giving me a project to master for him. And, uh, and, you know, that was completely just, uh, freaky and, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, yeah, I was, I was pretty panicked about it. And I think, you know, Alan sort of, you know, he sort of consulted me throughout the project and, and, uh, and we got out, you know, we got out of it alive and it went fine, but I was like, you know, what am I doing mastering a record that Jay right. Robbins, you know, mix, like <laughs> I have no business doing this. And, um, and, you know, funny, funny enough, you know, eventually I started working a lot with Jay, you know, years later after, I sort of finally, you know, kind of felt more comfortable as as a mastering guy. And now, you know, fast forward to now, and we've probably done, you know, uh, over a hundred projects together in the last five years. So, um, so that's amazing, you know, how that all kind of went down, but, but yeah, I sort of just learned, you know, the, the ropes there working with Alan, watching him, um, and then, you know, running for my life eventually, because I was like, there's no way I can do this, you know, <laughs> like, there's just too much pressure. There's too, right. too much responsibility with, you know, the buck stops with me. And I just, you know, I didn't feel like I knew enough technically and just wasn't comfortable. And I sort of ran for the hills at a certain point. And then oddly enough, you know, the the little bit of, of a discography that I did, you know, sort of uh, established while I was at West West Side for a brief time kind of followed me after I left there and and I kept getting calls, you know, about mastering. So eventually, you know, I said, well, I guess this is just the way it's going to go. I guess I'm a mastering engineer now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just why what nobody wanted me to, you know, track or produce or, or mix their stuff. They just, you know, if I got a call, it was Dan, can you master my record? So eventually I just, you know, 
I bit the bullet and I kind of scraped together what money I could and, you know, bought a manly compressor, a Varimu compressor and, and, uh, kind of built my quote unquote empire from there. Right, you know, yeah. It's just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's and the way it went. The records that you, that you've worked on, the, I don't know a fraction of them, but I, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of clutch and the sword. And I think that's how I originally got introduced to your work. And, and like it, there is, I don't, I mean, obviously each band has a different sound, but I think everything that I've heard come through your studio just sounds so damn good. Um, so I don't know if it's, thank you. I mean, yeah, you're, you are welcome, including, um, the red hot rebellion stuff plug, uh, (laughs) that you've done, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I I wanted to ask, um, about like your background, like as a musician, did you, were you in bands? Like when you were talking about at the start, when you were tracking your friends' bands and stuff, were you in those bands as well? And do you still play if you are a musician? Yeah. I mean, I was a guitar player for, um, I guess a a songwriter, guitar player, uh, you know, singer for sort of a, a nineties kind of post punk emo sort of band called Mm -hmm. Joshua. And, um, we were, uh, we made a few records and, you know, we got to kind of rub elbows with some, some pretty big bands of the time, but did you, you know, tour sort with Jawbreaker never. at some point? Did you ever come to Florida? With no, we didn't okay. tour with Jawbreaker. We played a little bit with uh, Jets to Brazil, who, okay. who were Blake's yeah, uh, yeah, band yeah. after Jawbreaker. Um, yeah. But yeah, we were just sort of one of those kind of undercard bands mm-hmm. that just never quite got over the hump, so to speak. Um, and you know, we played support for the get up kids and, uh, mm-hmm. at the drive-in and, nice. um, you know, we were knocking at the door, so to speak, right. and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just never quite, you know, climbed to the level of, of our peers. Yeah. Uh, and now our, you're working on mentioned peers, the records, like you're working on. The, right. Right. <laughs> My consolation prize. Right. Yeah. But well, that's, that's you know, awesome. it's, it's, it is weird. It, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, I'm right where I should be because I, I am, you know, pretty strongly, kind of grounded in the scene where um you know bands are, are playing the kind of music that i used to play like a lot of bands i work with now you know i i the big part of the reason why they come to me i'm sure is because you know i understand exactly what they're doing musically right, um yeah. and but you know but it's not just limited to that because i mean i've always just been sort of a music fan and that was sort of one of the hurdles i had as a musician is that you know i just loved so many different kinds of music and was influenced by so many different kinds of bands mm-hmm. or songwriters um, that I just sort of, you know, maybe, you know, never kind of locked into a common, you know, a sort of a, a connecting thread of, of work or, you know, a sound that was really identifiable because I was always kind of shifting my focus, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. being influenced by this or that and saying, you know, well, maybe it's time to, you know, write songs that sound a little bit more like this vibe and, or, or that vibe. So I think when our band started out, um, you know, early on, we were doing something very different from what we eventually ended up doing at the end, you know, which was sort of a a much more kind of, uh, experimental, you know, um, melodic sort of thing, as opposed to more of an aggressive, you know, almost a hardcore sort of sound, you know, which is where we started. So, so yeah, so I mean it's it suits me because you know I I love you know just kind of listening to Stevie Wonder and then mm-hmm. you know yeah. 
just kind of maybe and going and mixing war in. on women or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I said mixing. Damn it, you're a mess. Do, <laughs> does anyone ever send you like the the mix and say like, "Hey, our the guy, our mixing guy, it can't get this quite right. Can you mix it and master it for us?" Has that ever happened, or is? Yeah, I, I used to do a lot more of that than I do now. I mean, I kind of have to decline when when that question is posed nowadays because you know the mastering calendar just says so full that. Um, you know, it's really hard. I mean, I, I, I wish I could because it's so much fun. I mean, I, I right. miss mixing records. I mean, it's yeah. definitely something I, I really love to do, but you know, I'd be the first to admit that I'm probably not that great at it. And that's why I'm doing <laughs> what I'm doing. Right. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I tend to, I have a very kind of organic approach to, you know, kind of sonic treatment. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that was one of the big things that, um, you know, a lot of the feedback I used to get when I mix stuff, you know, and this is really before I knew anything. I really didn't know anything when I was mixing. Now, you know, with what I know now, I realize that I was absolutely just shooting in the dark. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I tended to, you know, stay very true to the source that was given to me and try and honor, you know, sort of the, the sound that was captured and try and highlight, you know, the performance, the natural performance. I wasn't right. big on like, you know, sort of quantizing drums and Right. Um, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. cleaning things up and doing lots of tons of edits or anything. And, you know, even as a tracking engineer, I would kind of let stuff slide. If, if some something was a little wonky, it wouldn't really bother me very much because, mm-hmm. you know, it felt human. It felt natural. Right. It felt real. And that's always been my sort of the way I hear things. And, you know, that translates really well to mastering because, mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of, you know, being objective, uh, doing no harm, you know, just sort of doing just what's needed to sort of bring it up to a certain, you know, standard or benchmark, um, is kind of, you know, a a pretty good description of the job. So, so I think it all just kind of worked out the way it was supposed to, even though, you know, I'll I'll bet a lot of mastering guys you talked to were once had starry eyes of of being a producer, mix engineer, you know, Chris Lord algae or something, but, um, (laughs) it just doesn't go that way for everybody. Exactly. So is there like a mastering engineer Hippocratic oath to do no harm to the sound recording? Is that, (laughs) that's what they say. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, that's, you'll hear that repeated a lot. Um, Mm. when you talk to mastering folk, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, you know, you, you really, it's, it's, you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, you know, uh, you know, sometimes you'll get yelled at because you didn't do enough. And, um, sometimes people will complain because you changed something that they didn't want changed, but you know, it's really, it's all part of the job. And, um, you know, you can't play it halfway. You just have to do what, what you do and what you feel and what you think is the right thing to do. And that's kind of what people are paying you for. And, you know, not every, everyone is not going to match up perfectly. There are going to be times when, you know, people hear things a little differently than you do. And, you know, maybe it's just a little bit more work to get it to the end result that everybody's after. But, you know, most of the time objectivity, uh, and, kind of neutrality is, is a good place to start because, you know, you have to respect what comes in and you right. have to say, you know, if this is the approved mix, somebody really likes it. I mean, they have to, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Somebody, <laughs> or, right. you know, well, wouldn't have wound this up wouldn't, yeah. Yeah. Is, or, uh, you know, yeah. Th- there are also instances where people just kind of give you a disclaimer, like, all right, you know, I, I blew it. Like this mix is a mess. <laughs> you yeah. know? So to you're going to have to really <laughs> get in there, get in the weeds and, and just yeah. make it work. And, you know, 
that that kind of statement up front is always helpful. You yeah. know, it's it's good to know, um, you know, when someone's direct and say just asks you to save their butt. I mean, that's that's better than kind of doing two or three passes at something and then finally everybody kind of comes clean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you know, it sounds like you're holding back a little bit for whatever reason <laughs> yeah. and we really just want you to get in there and fix that. So, um so yeah, being direct is good, you know. Yeah. That's a, that's always a welcome kind of aspect of you know, of any client and I try to do the same in return because you're not doing anybody any favors by you know, right. trying not to hurt their feelings yeah, you're just if something wasting is really everybody's wrong. Time. Yeah, exactly. Y- yeah, are pretty we, much. Are we still so. in the midst of the loudness wars or is that kind of calmed down? Because I know for a while everyone's like, my mix has to be louder than this guy and that guy and then louder, louder, louder. <laughs> and then is, are yeah, we, have mean, we reached it, the, the limit? Is it the limit of the brick wall limiter? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, zero is still zero, <laughs> zero in digital. Zero. You know, the ceiling is still the ceiling, but people we'll always try and find new ways to, you know, squeeze as much extra level out of anything that they possibly can. I mean, you know, it, it, it's really, again, it comes down to uh, client to client. It, it varies. I mean, you know, people still obviously want the allowed record if they can have one and not mm-hmm. kind of give up, you know, everything that they worked for before the mastering began. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of the big trick of the job is, to sort of get it as loud as possible, but make it feel like it hasn't been, you know, squashed or processed or, you know, heavily. Sound kind like of, microchips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it hasn't been ravaged in, yeah. in the process of, of getting it to the level that it's at. It really, you know, that's the thing that we aspire to every day. And, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's kind of not a big part of my clientele. Like there's not a right. whole lot of, the kind of, you know, the, the kind of people I'm working with, they're really just either trying to make the best sounding record that they can, or, you know, um, they're just not that concerned with, with loudness over quality. They, they'll pick quality every time, you right. know, and that's, yeah. those are the people I want to work with anyway. Um, but there are, you know, there, there are the occasional folks that are still kind of hung up on the loudest thing. And it's funny because, you know, now streaming is such a big deal, uh, with the way that everyone's listening Mm -hmm. and you know, there's a lot of stuff going on going on in the stream streaming world that discourages loud mastering um, Mm -hmm. because you know, they're all sort of applying their own game changes uh, depending on the service. They're they're applying game changes to the audio. Kind of like a radio station. will keep the one track to the next, keeping it a consistent volume, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, Mm -hmm. we call it normalization and, you know, every, every service, um, you know, has a little bit of a different spec. So it's, it's very hard to hit the target, um, you know, with the streaming services and YouTube has a different spec, you yeah. know, than Spotify and Apple music has a di- different spec than the two of those services have. Yeah. And so it's really kind of an, a weird time where, you know, we're sort of chasing our tail right now in the mastering mm-hmm. world because, you know, people are, you know, not often, but I have had one or two, you know, clients come back to me you know, in the last six months or a year and say, Hey, you know, my song is not as loud on Spotify as, you know, Mm. Britney Spears or something like that. And, (laughs) you know, it's, it's sort of, (laughs) it's not, you know, why, what you're, what we're essentially telling them is, you know, by turning the master down, we might actually get closer. Um, and, and it's very hard for people to process that. Like they don't understand 
That's crazy. how that makes sense. And so it's, it's kind of a challenging time to sort of, you know, properly educate folks yeah. and, you know, get them to embrace, you know, the concept of kind of backing off a little bit and, and that's going to actually make them more competitive sounding in the streaming universe. Um, yeah, that's and interesting. If they're doing a CD, you know, yeah, that's crazy to think about though. That's nuts, but well, and, uh, okay. Let's, yeah. I mean, let's, let's do like a, a like a, a production meeting between me and you right, right now. So like this, um, this Red Hot Rebellion is going to release one song now and then either an EP or an album down the road. So I'm going to be giving you a finished mix that is primarily going to be released uh, digital and streaming first and then might wind up on a different medium, whether it's vinyl or CD. So what, how, so what should we do then to prepare that mix for you? And then what, what will you do given all that information of how we're going to release it initially and then maybe in the future? Well, in a perfect world, what would happen is, um, you know, you would obviously prepare a mix that is pretty much the same procedure as you would normally use to prepare a good sounding mix. Mm -hmm. Um, nothing really would have to change other than that, you know, there's even more reinforcement for not, you know, slamming the mix before the mastering. So you really don't have to use, you know, a lot of limiting and, and try and squeeze a lot of loudness out of the mix before it comes to me because, you know, now with these additional considerations, uh, you know, with streaming normalization, et cetera, um, you know, we really want to preserve quality at every step as best we can. So, so, you know, just do a great mix. Don't worry about, you know, doing, lim- putting limiters across the mix or making it loud. Let me That's sort of deal job. with, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me deal with the loudness part. And, um, and what I would say is what I typically tell people, because, you know, people, will generally freak out when they realize like, you know, there's all these different targets and there's, you know, there's still mastered for iTunes and what do we do? You know, do we have to have like right. five different masters for every that song? That was going to be my question and, is like, do I need a master for <laughs> iTunes? Do I need one for Spotify? Do I need one that might go on a, a seven inch versus a, a 33 and a third RPM full length? Uh, ah, freak <laughs> right. it out. Talk me down, Dan, talk me down. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, typically what I find, and again, this goes back to kind of, you know, it kind of comes back to you. It's kind of like, well, what do you want out of this, you know, project? Do you want the, you know, sort of iTunes release to be really loud and in your face? Do you want to make sure that you're not compromising on level, you know, in that world? Or or maybe eventually you're going to release a CD of all these songs that you're planning to, to sort of release monthly at this point. Um, so. I would say there's really only a need for two masters and that's typically what I tell clients because, you know, I'm, I don't want to nickel and dime and charge, you know, extra money for all these different versions. And to be right. perfectly honest with you, I don't want to take the time to have to prepare all these different right. versions yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I don't have time for that. Right. So, you know, like I said, I mean, I'm typically not really squashing stuff very hard anyway. I mean, mm. it's just not the way that I, do this job. You know, I, I really don't slam things for loudness. Um, you know, I, I've done records that are plenty loud that, you know, survive the loudness normalization across platforms perfectly fine. But what I typically tell people is let's do one alternate version with the peak limiting kind of backed off. Um, and that's the final limiting that basically determines, you know, the absolute maximum level of the master. And, you know, let's, let's kind of temper that down a little bit and let's leave a little bit more 
headroom on the final output of the file. So in other words, you know, when we're trying to get these really loud masters, um, we're basically using absolutely every, you know, sort of value of a volume in the available scale in the digital domain. So, you know, we're printing masters to a final output of minus one tenth of a decibel <laughs> until it just wow. distorts and, and explodes. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. wow. so basically if you, if we just kind of temper that back and leave a full decibel of, of final, you know, headroom mm -hmm. beyond the final peak, uh, you know, the output level of the master. And then we also temper the limiting back a little bit. Um, then we're going to be hitting these streaming targets pretty much dead on. So hmm. there's, there's, you know, two, this is twofold, you know, how, how this benefits us. And, and that's that we're hitting the streaming targets. So they're not turning the master down. So that's great, you know, because it's going to be just as competitive as anything else in the services. And then the second good thing about that is now we've backed off, you know, this really kind of aggressive limiting process that we use to kind of maximize level on CD. But now that we've backed it down, we've kind of gotten a little bit of dynamic range back. You know, we've got a little bit more kind of clarity in the transients, you know, a little bit more yeah. punch in the drums, uh, if, if that's the kind of track we're talking about. Um, just a little more space, a little less harsh, a little less crispiness, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, more musicality. And that all translates really well. Yeah. I was going to say that, that adds a little more musicality and a little more. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, more it adds. Yeah. More. more it's, it's more musical and it has a little bit more depth and space and, um, and it just, just plain old sounds better. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't need to use lots of adjectives and we don't need to get technical. It just, <laughs> it, it just plain sounds, sounds better. better because yeah. yeah, we, we just really care about what regular people think you know right, about yeah. listening to music because you know we can we can have a big party all day long that you know we got the loudest record on spotify <laughs> and that's great but if nobody likes it yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> and nobody yeah. wants to listen to it because it hurts their head after song three yeah. then you know <laughs> we really haven't accomplished anything so you know it just plain old sounds better to to the folks that are actually going to be streaming music on these services and you know they won't be provoked to turn something off. And if something is mastered really hot and mm -hmm. just really starved of dynamic range because of the aggressive limiting that I was talking about, um, you know, it's really just, it's going to sound very, very small and very kind of, you know, insignificant on a streaming service that's turning it down six or seven decibels right, yeah. just so that, you know, it meets their kind of, loudness normalization sort of spec and plays, you know, plays back evenly in perceived level with everything else on Spotify or Apple music and, and, and the like. So, you know, so we're winning in two ways and it's great. And, you know, obviously that takes a little bit of extra time in the mastering process. So, you know, we try and sort of be fair and, and ask for a tiny bit more compensation for doing this, but you know, mm -hmm. it's not a lot. And, you know, if a client doesn't see the benefit in doing it and, and, and doesn't really want to do that, they just want to kind of stick with the traditional program, then we'll honor that. And that's fine. We're not forcing anybody to do anything right. that they don't want to do. But it's, it's just more of, you know, educating people to the reality of what's happening and, you know, let them make the choice. And, and if they don't hear a difference, then, you know. <laughs> so be it. Yeah. So be it. Yeah. Right.
That's amazing. Well, uh, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Where can people uh, find you online and in, in the interwebs if there are clients out there that want to hire you for some awesome mastering sorcery? You can find me at www.srmastering.com, and that's SR for Sunroom. Um, and uh, also, there's, you know, there's Facebook, uh, Sunroom Audio on Facebook. Uh, you could find me on Instagram, uh, which is also listed as Sunroom Audio, but also my name, Dan Kutan. Um, if you do a search, you'll you'll track me down there, and lots of cool pictures of gear that uh, I'll never pay off. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is some fancy my dog gear. And yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's all my, my all my Instagram yeah. is is my dog, and then even the band Red Hot Rebellion's Instagram is loaded full of pictures of my dogs and stuff. So yeah. I get dogs it. are essential for, for any artistic endeavor. Yeah, exactly. Dogs make rock and roll go round. Well, I Dan, agree. thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with me and shed some light on mastering. Um, if uh, people have questions, they can find you online at srmastering.com. And Dan is a super nice fella. So reach out to him, please, folks. Dan, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, keep an eye out for those uh, new Red Hot Rebellion tracks that are coming your way <laughs> to make your ears bleed. Yeah, thank you, Jim. It was a lot of fun. And, yeah, looking forward to the work. All right, buddy. I'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Take All right, care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So cool. I guess that'll do it for this episode of Idiots with Instruments. I am Jim Tramontana reminding you to keep it simple. Hey, this is Blind Tone WWJ. Stay hydrated, everybody. And uh, I'm Andres, uh, letting you know to please not play acoustic because uh, it takes away jabs from drummers. That's correct. Yeah. All right. Bye! Idiots with Instruments is a solid arts and science production. All rights reserved throughout the multiverse. Please subscribe and review the show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Visit idiotswithinstruments.com for exclusive bonus material and to support or sponsor this show.